Hey there, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. Hey, how's it going? Uh, my name is Cole. And if you haven't met me yet, I am so honored. I'm so thrilled to be here um, to serve as a college minister for Dawson here. And so um, before I begin, thank you. Yeah, before I begin, uh, I would be remiss if I did not point in the direction of the people who have been here, who have long preceded me. So for Kara, for Jacob, for all of the college and DYP staff, you guys have held this thing together and nobody, none of us would be here if it hadn't been for all of your dedicated love and service and labor for the gospel. So thank you. Give it up for all of your staff. They are amazing people, and so I am really honored and I'm really excited to be here and to serve alongside them. So um, without further ado, I guess, uh, since it is my first time being before you in this capacity, I thought I would give a little bit of information about myself. Um, I, whenever I'm meeting someone new really detest fun facts, but I've scrounged up a few that I will give to you all uh, this evening. So a fun fact about me is I like to play basketball, and so I'm not very good at basketball, but I like to get out there and feel like I'm contributing to something. And so if you ever want to, I guess, try to cross me up, you feel free. It'll probably happen. Um, Let's see, other fun facts. Uh, This year has been a pretty eventful year for myself and for my wife Jada, our family. Um, We got a dog about a year ago. Now his name is Cooper, and he is uh, the perfect combination of like bundle of joy meets terror. And he is the best. We love him so much. I didn't know I needed an emotional support dog, but he has served that for us while also uh, tearing up our clothes and chewing up our furniture. So if you ever come to our house, I can point to you all the the things that he's destroyed. Another fun fact is uh, recently we bought a house. So I don't know, home ownership, you know, maybe a way is a way for you. I don't know where you are with home ownership, but it's an exciting stage of life. But really all it means is you fire your landlord. And so now, well, I don't have free time now, but if I do have free time, what it's spent is on YouTube. Um, you can learn anything on YouTube, I've discovered, right? Like how to hang up mirrors and windows and, not windows, you can't hang up a window, but <laughs> you get the point. And so I really am just trying to do everything I can to make sure my house stays like not on fire at all times. And so success so far, but y'all can be praying for that as well. But uh, in all seriousness, this has been a really fantastic year for us. God has done so many wonderful and incredible things in the life of our family that I can sit here and wax poetic on and would love to tell you all about. Right? He has done good things so where I can confess with Asaph, who is the author of our text. He is the author of Psalm 73. I can confess with him, man, God has been good to me. But just because God has been good to me does not mean things have been easy. God's goodness does not equate with an easy life. In fact, this year, as good as it's been, has been one that has been full of challenges I never could see 
coming. This year, I've inherited more responsibility all at once than I ever could have imagined. I have dealt more closely with the world and its brokenness than I ever cared to. And I've seen up close and personal how dark and evil this world can be. I've seen it more clearly than I ever hoped for. And so the sin and the wickedness of the world, as good as this year has been, as good as God has been to us, it is this present reality that we must grapple with. And so if you have ever felt this way, if you've ever felt the burden of a heavy life, and if you've ever fantasized about a life of ease, or if you've felt crushed under the weight of responsibility and you have been looking for the next thing to get some sort of release, you've felt bound to perfection and unable to meet all of its demands, well, then you, like me, have a home in Psalm 73. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, I promise. Okay. So, let's dive back in. Psalm 73. Looking at verse 1, there he says, truly, the Asaph, Asaph, the author of our psalm, he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We'll stop right there. Psalm 73 is the first psalm in book three of the psalms. And so if you know a little bit about the psalms, I know you guys have been working through it this semester. Uh, There's five categories or five chapters, if you will, five books that are these collections of psalms that are divided thematically And each theme connects back to one of the major books of the Torah, right? So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And each book corresponds thematically with what's going on in those different books. And so here we are in book three, which corresponds with Leviticus, everyone's favorite book, right? So the themes that we're going to deal with in Psalm 73 are things like holiness, worship, and God's presence. And so that's a little primer for where we're going tonight, holiness, worship, God's presence. And what we have here is Asaph. He is this psalmist of this text, and he's going on what I like to think of as like a little mental mountain climb, right? He's in his, I imagine him kind of just being in his room, just kind of thinking to himself. And on the surface, it seems like nothing much is going on, but in his mind, he is in the throes of like Everest-style mountain climbing, right? He is like hooking to like the, like, uh, crags, is that what they call it? Crags in the rocks? I don't know anything about mountain climbing. But he is up there. He's in it, right? He is in the thick of mountain climbing. And there is a point in his journey where he almost slips. He comes up on a snag or a stumbling block of sorts. It's this unsettling and unresolved question about God and his character that he can't get past, and it's simply this. How can a good God in a good world, in a good creation, allow the wicked to run rampant? If God is good and just, then why does it so often seem like God's people are the ones who lose and suffer? How can this God be just? In fact, where is this God in this world. So that is 
the question that we are going to take up tonight as we journey together through Psalm 73. So if you look with me back to verse 4, he's going to begin addressing this question by examining what he will call, uh, in so many words, the counsel of the wicked. And what he's doing is he's actually drawing us all the way back to Psalm 1. And there in Psalm 1, the psalmist is describing this tension between the man who delights in God's law and the counsel of the wicked. And so what Asaph is doing is he's drawing up this big meditation, this big imaginative retelling of who these people are. This is the counsel of the wicked. And he describes them like this. They have no pangs until death. They suffer nothing suddenly. right? They don't hurt until it's all over. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're snake-like. They're slimy. They are not in trouble as others are. In fact, they're not stricken like the rest of us. Because of this, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. And from on high, they threaten oppression against the little guy. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, well, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Man, all in vain, I have kept my heart clean. All in vain, I have washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken. All the day long, every morning, I have been rebuked. And if I had said, I will speak thus, well, then I would have betrayed the generation of your children. This is the wicked, according to Asaph. And so if you read it closely, what you'll find is that there are three characteristics or categories that we can think of these people as he's describing them. And they're interrelated. They flow in a logical sort of train of thought. The first is... This is a group of people that doesn't really suffer much. In fact, everything they put their hand to seems to always work out. They are your buddy who never has to study for a test and like immediately aces it without question, right? That drives us all nuts. This is the person who doesn't have to do a lot to get a lot. And while that's good and well, we should, you know, be happy for people's successes. We should want and encourage them and cheer our friends and stuff on. But because of this relative ease, they are the arrogant. They think that their posh and easy life is a result of their actions, right? They think to themselves, well, listen, I must be pretty awesome if everything goes well for me, Right? Could it be chance or happenstance or just being at the right place at the right time? It has to be some amazing special thing about me that makes me who I am. And so in their arrogance, they continue to grow and grow and grow until they finally harden to that idea and see themselves as little self-made gods. This world that they've created is theirs. And we're just living in it, right? It's their world. We're just living in it. They are self-made gods. They're kings of their own little kingdoms. And so because of this, they are quick 
to assert themselves. They don't care who they cut down in order to achieve what they want. See, they are the types of people who know good and evil, who know how to play both sides to their advantage, who know how to win. And so maybe uh, that description has brought someone to mind. (laughs) I'm sure uh, for me it has, right? But as you think about that person, the last thing about this group of people I, we have to say is that the reason why this group makes us so mad, right? The reason we get infuriated by this group of people is because simply you're not them, right? We're jealous. We're envious. We have this desire to win. I mean, who doesn't want to win? Who doesn't want to go through life relatively unscathed? Who doesn't want to have ease in all of their work? And the reason we can't stand this group of people, the wicked, Asaph's anger is directed toward them is because he grew envious of them. And the reason he grew envious of them is for another group of three. I'm going to throw like a ton of like three points at you guys. I really am not like a point guy, but I was just feeling it this time. Just point after point after point, okay? The first reason that the wicked, we don't like the wicked is because they remind us that our work is futile. Our work is futile. There is a law at work in the universe. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's this idea that whatever you sow is what you one day will reap, right? Paul will talk about this in Galatians 6. Whatever one sows is what whatever one will reap, Now, that's all fine and well. We have no problem with that when we think about it from like a purely philosophical, intellectual standpoint. The problem is, is when you sow a ton of good things and you don't reap what you expect, right? It's like when you get your first job and you work like, man, like 30 hours, like my paycheck's gonna be amazing, right? And then you have like, you know, half of it taken out in taxes and you're like, okay, all right, this is how it is now, right? We have this broken expectation between what we put in and the results that we garner. And the reason for this is all the way back into Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, as God is cursing humanity, he's cursing the creation as a consequence for sin, what he does is he curses the ground. And maybe you've read over that before and didn't quite know what he was talking about, but this is what is being talked about there, that our work is now futile. There's no one-for-one relationship between sowing and reaping. There's never going to be such a thing as 100% yield for my chemistry people out there. You're always going to lose something in the process. Because if we could dictate our lives based on the amount of work that we put in, if we could manufacture some sort of equation, right, that just be like, okay, as long as I just do these things and I'm always going to get these results, well, then we could dictate and dominate our lives as we see fit, but that's just never going to be the case. And the wicked remind us of this fact. So the wicked remind us of works futility, one, all right? Two is related to one, right? So when we're thinking about this law of reaping and sowing and how whenever we are like sowing good things, right? Whenever we are putting our efforts toward things that are benefits, and there always seems like there's never, you know, the appropriate result. Well, The reverse is unfortunately not the case, right? Whenever you slip up that one time, you know, 
I really never do this, but I'm just going to go over the speed limit. I mean, it's, it's late at night. Who cares? Just one time going to go over the speed limit. What happens? You get pulled over, right? I mean, I never do this, but I'm just going to peek over at my friend's test. Like, I didn't have enough time to study, and I really need to pass this. But that one time you do it, what always seems to happen is that you get caught, right? And then you're like holding your hands up like, now you decide to work, right? This law, huh? Reaping so you think you're big and bad, and now you want to work, right? So the first piece is that our work is futile. Number two is we are constantly held accountable for our failures. The third thing that the wicked reminds us of is that we ultimately are not in control. There are some things in this life that we must obey. Uh, My height, you know, I'm not like short, but... I would like to be taller, I think, right? I said I'd like to play basketball earlier, and if I was taller, then I might not be here. I might be on the Grizzlies or something, right? <laughs> Probably not. But there is a law of genetics I must obey. I can't push past that, right? I can't just, like, in my bed at night, like, hope I'm going to, like, you know, sprout an inch. I wish I could. So the wicked remind us that we are not in control. And the thing that they ultimately shake us to our core with is this fact that we are bound to something. We are bound to a set of behaviors. We are bound to an inability to do the right thing, by and large. We are slaves to sin. And when we reap sin's consequences, we are more clearly reminded that there's a group of people who seem to never have to deal with that. And that really is hard to deal with. Okay? So those are three things that the wicked remind us of that really, really irk us. And so my question, I guess, for you after, you know, going through that, it's just really light reading, you know, is uh, who's feeling a little, like, angry? Anybody? Maybe not. Maybe it's, you know, Tuesday evening, got some coffee. You might not be feeling angry. But if you are feeling a little mad about some group of people that maybe you have in your mind, what I want to tell you is that that is the appropriate response. Anger is the appropriate response when we think about evil and sin and injustice and all of these things about this world that we wish worked a different different way. Anger should be your response when you mourn the loss of senseless life, senseless loss of life. Anger should be the feeling that you feel when you see another devastating news Headline, this is not the way that it is supposed to be. So the question then becomes, what do you do with that anger? In the last year, uh, I mentioned earlier, it's been, it's been a challenging year. And in the last year, I have felt what um, C.S. Lewis's character, Ransom, he, anyone know what I'm talking about? The Space Trilogy? In the Space Trilogy, it's kind of like Narnia for, you know, big kids, um, it's, it's good. You guys should check it out. But in that series, there's a guy named Ransom who, in the second book, he's facing down this, this vile enemy. And he's on another planet. You know, it's kind of like nerdy stuff, whatever. But he's on another planet, and he has to face down this enemy who represents everything that's wrong with our world. He represents sin, death, and destruction. He is the epitome of evil, and he has set out this enemy to destroy the civilization that this guy, Ransom, is, is found himself on. 
And it becomes really clear to Ransom at, at some point that the only way to like stop this guy, this epitome of evil, is to just you know do it the old-fashioned way, like hands up, let's go, cage match, we're fighting. And this is certain death for this guy. I mean, he's just a dude, right? He has nothing special about him. There's no unique quality. He's not like a bodybuilder. He has no muscles. He might have muscles, I don't know. But there's nothing special or unique about him to where he could be able to take down this enemy. And so what should feel like fear, what should feel like hesitation, what should feel like nervousness, Ransom, as he's reflecting before he goes into the arena, he reflects, no, 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 my arms felt strong. My knees were strengthened. My scared look turned into a grimace, right? He was ready. He reflects on this and he says, this is what anger is for. This moment right here, this showdown, face off, stare down with evil is why anger exists. So the question becomes, who are you angry for? Because if you read closely, Asaph doesn't go there. He stops short of this cage match duel to the death with the wicked. The reason being is because of the question, who are you angry for? See, there's a difference between righteous indignation, righteous anger, wrath, and envy. Envy says, I'm mad because you have what I want. But righteous anger says, I'm mad because you don't have what you should get. That's the difference. Righteous anger and and envy. We can see this throughout the entire course of the Old Testament, right? You're going to be angry like Cain, Genesis 4, who's like, you know, big mad that his brother got everything that he wanted, right? Or you're going to be angry like Jesus, who flips over the money uh, money changers' tables, because they are depriving people of an experience with God in worship. Who are you angry for? So, if we, if Asaph, so look with me in, in verse 15. Sorry, I got a little ahead of myself. So, verse 15, he says, listen, if I had said thus, if I had confessed that this is the way that the world works, if I had said that Uh, evil has won the day. And the only way for us to surely and truly make sure the scales even out of justice, right, that whatever people sow is what they reap, is for us to take matters into our own hands and take some, you know, vigilante justice out into the streets and make sure people get what's coming to them. If I had said the best way to fight the evils of this world is with fire, well, then I would have betrayed the generation of your people. And why? Why? See, God's mercy is the X factor in the plane of cosmic fairness, right? In this law of reaping and sowing, the one caveat that turns the rule on its head is God's mercy. So if Asaph had assented to this view that justice is ours for the taking, then it would have required him to abandon God's mercy. And he can't do that because God has shown himself to be merciful. In the whole course of Israel's history, God has been merciful to the little guy, right? To the guy who was not particularly impressive, 
to the guy who wasn't really that good in and of himself. No, he has shown mercy to and elevated above the wicked, the little guy, Israel. And so for him to take matters into his own hands, to procure justice, to enter into the cage match with the wicked, well, then he would have been depriving and saying uh, no to the very thing that God has given to his people, and that is mercy. So uh, we are in the throes of a, a bit of a dilemma, no? On the one hand, how is it fair that God can give benefits and good things to people who are pretty terrible in our estimation and be good to those people who earn it, right? Who are good in our estimation. How can these two tensions coincide? How can he make the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike? And so it's to verse 16 that we go to answer this question. So look with me there. He says, when I thought... How to understand this? It seemed to me like a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. In truth, in reality, you set them in the slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered and when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Proverbs Starts this way, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here for Asaph in the beginning of book three of the Psalms, it's God's presence that provides the proper perspective. God's presence provides perspective. Now, I don't know if you know much about worship in the Old Testament, but it was centered in a main place, right? That place we call the temple. And people would travel from far and wide to spend time at the temple and hang out and enjoy one another's company and offer sacrifices to God. And it was the center, right? It was the main place of the Israelites' worship. And if you know much about the temple, if we could put it this way, it was kind of like worship by immersion, if I could put it that way, right? Because when you first walked into the temple, and I imagine Asa felt it this way, and when he walks in, the first thing that fills his presence is the smell, Right? When you enter the temple gates and you have this big, huge altar right here and there's just like steaks being sizzled all over that thing and you have people eating and having a good time, right? that smell fills the air. And he's reminded, man, God does not uh, punish his people according to their sins. That he is slow to anger and abounding in fast, steadfast love for generations. And when he sees the smoke of that sacrifice start rising up to heaven, he's teleported up there with it. And he himself, it's like he's sitting there at the table with God. And that's why he says in the very next verse, nevertheless, I'm, I'm with you all the time. Where could I run from your presence that you can't find me? Where could I hide? Why would I want to hide? And then when he hears 
chorus of voices singing together, singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And he's drawn up to that great cloud of witnesses who sing together that God's presence is not confined to this one piece of ground, but this whole earth belongs to him. That goes for, that, that includes the wicked. And so it is a return to sanctuary that resets Asaph's rhythm. It is a, it's like, uh, you know, those, right, 220 to the volt, right, to the heart, right? It's just electricity coursing through his chest. He is alive again. I'm sorry, that was, that was not the first impression I wanted to make, but here we are. <laughs> he is alive again. And the reason being is because the sanctuary forces Asaph out of his own head and into God's world. The sanctuary forces Asaph out of his own head and into God's reality. And it's only there that the world begins to make sense, Right? It's a return to the sanctuary that tells Asaph the truth. God doesn't lose. It may seem like the wicked are getting away with all this stuff, but they will be held to account. It may seem like evil is ruling the day, but it'll be done away with. God does not lose. Second of all, God is not mocked. He's not a sucker, right? He doesn't think that you can't slip one by him. He knows and sees and judges rightly according to all. He doesn't judge things as man judge them, but he sees according to the heart. So God does not lose. He's not mocked. And God will reveal himself as God. See, for a time, God has overlooked human ignorance and injustice, but one day he will command repentance. For a time, God has let things play the way that they will so that in his kindness, in his mercy, in his grace, people might turn to him. But that time is not infinite. And there will come a time when evil is held to account. There will come a time when this life that we know will be like when you wake up from a good nap. Right? The dream dissipates and fades, and you can't even remember what it was like, right? There will come a time when this life that we know and suffer and pain through will be like a dream, and the life that we dream about will be the world we live in. So, it's good news for us this evening that God is just, that God holds evil to account, that God doesn't lose and he's not mocked. But if you leave here tonight thinking that this is Asaph's central point, that he is here to just put the wicked on blast and go on his merry way, well, then you've missed the point. The point of Psalm 73 is not to illustrate, right? It's not a uh, Quentin Tarantino movie, right, where the bad guys just get brutally murdered, right? It's not that. It's not a vivid depiction of the wicked's destruction, but it is an illumination to the path to wickedness. 
Psalm 73 is not a cathartic illustration of the wicked's destruction, but it is to demonstrate that we are all a step away from wickedness. Our feet can slip. We can hit that snag. We can walk through the stumbling block and not know what hit us. See, it's not the wicked that uh, nearly make Asaph's feet fall. No, it's his own envy within him. It's Asaph's coveting that creates his questioning. And it starts right there. See, covetousness is a black hole of sorts. It is the black hole that leads to wickedness. This idea that you can earn for yourself a life better than what God has assigned for you is wickedness. Any addition that we make to ourselves ultimately in truth is a subtraction. We think we can add all of these accolades. We think we can add up all of these treasures for ourselves, but in the end, we're taking away from the thing that God has for us. And so the point of Asaph's message tonight and for this sermon is don't fall into the trap. Watch out for that pitfall. Don't hit the snag. Don't believe the lie that you can afford yourself a life better on your terms, by your means, and in your strength than what God has purposed for you. Because I promise you, it's not. I promise you, it's not. So, you know, I'm new here. I'm new around here. Um, And I haven't met a ton of you guys, but, you know, if you're here tonight, and maybe you are feeling like you have had a really hard year, maybe you're feeling stuck. Maybe you feel like your feet are about to slip. And maybe you're tired of living in your own head. Maybe you need to step into God's reality. Would you come to the sanctuary? Who is Jesus? He is in himself the full place of God's presence. He in him, the full of God, was pleased to dwell. He is the sanctuary of God. He's the full revelation. And now as he is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, guess what? His body is right here. We together are the place of God's presence, like living stones being built into a temple. And so would you come to the sanctuary? Would you allow yourself to actually be known? to be forced out of your head and into God's world, the real world, by the way. Maybe you're tired of doing good stuff. Maybe you've taken stock and inventory of all the good works that you've done in the past year, and you're starting to wonder, man, where are all those benefits I was promised? And if that's you, would you come to the one who says, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. It's not about counting up your good works. It's not about counting up these things that you think you can derive from me, but receive what I can give, which is what you really want in this rest. And maybe you are angry tonight, and you have a lot of reason to be angry. There's a lot of good reasons to be angry. Maybe sin and brokenness and evil has taken more from you than you can even take, take count of at this point. Maybe you've been touched so closely 
by devastation, death, that you don't care about these good works anymore. You don't care to keep any of this stuff. All you want is revenge. All you are filled with is rage. And if that's you, would you look to that full sanctuary? The time and place when God's presence will be full and final. That city that has foundations, whose maker and builder is God, and he who says he draws near to the brokenhearted. This God who is acquainted with grief, would you look to that God, to Jesus? And would you enter into that sanctuary, that world? See, is your soul troubled and weary? Is there no light in the darkness you see? Listen, there is light for a look at the Savior, and there is life more abundant and free. Would you turn your eyes upon Jesus? Would you look full into his wonderful face? And the things of this world, I promise, will grow strangely dim. And the light is glory and grace. See, we have no one in heaven but God. There's nothing on this earth that we can desire or ought to desire besides him. And so when our flesh fails, when you are in that place, look to him who will provide and carry you through. Amen. So we're going to take 120 seconds. So in this time, think about what is God saying to me through Psalm 73? And what do I need to do about it? Let me pray. Lord, give us grace. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this text. God, we thank you that your people are not afraid to be real, to be vulnerable, and to be honest with their pitfalls. And Lord, we thank you for Asa preserving this meditation, this mental mountain climb. God, we thank you, Lord, that you have provided an answer, God. Lord, that our worship must be grounded in you. Father, I pray you bless this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano Podcast. If you're interested in the songs that we sing, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. We'll see you next week.